You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Unscrewed. The show that knows that real liberation includes sexual liberation. I am your host, Jacqueline Friedman, and welcome to another episode of Unscrewed. Unscrewed Nation, I've been hearing you for quite a while now ask me to do a show talking about the way our cultural ideas about masculinity and how that impacts all of our ability, whatever our genders, to have our sexualities and our sex lives and our liberty and our freedom from violence and all of that stuff. And I'm so thrilled to have just the perfect person with me to talk about this. Jimmy Briggs is a teacher. He's an award-winning war journalist, and he's also the co-founder of the Man Up campaign. Jimmy, thank you so much for coming on Unscrewed. Of course. Thank you for having me, Jacqueline. Ah, it's such an important topic, and there's so much to talk about. But as you know, before we get into it, I need to put you through our lightning round questions. Are you ready? Sure, absolutely. All right. What's been making you the happiest this week? I think for me, this week, what's making me happy is, is being back home. The past several weeks, really the past couple of months, I've been traveling every single week somewhere outside New York City where I live, somewhere away from home, often for long periods of time. Mm. And that means being away from my wife, being away from my daughter, being away from my friends and colleagues. All the trips have been really fruitful and productive, but you know, it's, it takes a toll. And this is the first week in a long time that I've, I'll be able to stay at home the entire week. I can relax, go to the gym, go to my favorite yoga class in my neighborhood. It really kind of just get acclimated to being still for a, few, for a little bit. That is such a good feeling. <laughs> the travel is really interesting and fun, but like there's nothing like coming home. That's wonderful. Absolutely. Absolutely. What is the best sex advice you ever received? <laughs> I think the best sex advice I ever received was to uh, take my time and go slow. Yeah. Whether it's someone I, I've been with for a while or someone who with whom I'm you know early is an early stage in a relationship just to, to, to be patient and go slow which I think you know especially for adolescent males that's often hard to do but um, yeah I, th- I think that's something that's really with all my partners that's something I've, I've taken to heart in a very conscious way right on what has been making you the maddest or saddest recently when it comes to news about sexuality or, or things related there's so many things that 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 percolate and come to mind when you ask that question. The one thing I can say is this still lingering, this still skeptical conversation we, you know, we, we're having far too often nationally about the reality, the truth that uh, campus sexual assault and rape is a real issue that has to be addressed, confronted um, wholeheartedly and with intentionality. I mean, I still talk to friends and family. I still 
listen in on debates and, and go to gatherings where there's still this prevailing doubt or skepticism that, you know, campus sexual assault and rape and the harassment of women and uh, people who are LGBTQ, that these are not real things. And it's, it's frustrating that this is still in doubt. Amen. What's the biggest sex myth you used to believe but don't believe anymore? Oh my gosh, that's a big, that's a big one. Um, I think the biggest sex myth for me that I realized soon enough was in fact a myth was that a man could always tell when a woman has had an orgasm. Oh. You know, my guy friends would always tell me, you know, women say that they, they, they fake it or they pretend or whatever sometimes. Uh, but, you know, a guy can always tell. And I, I bought into that. And, and soon enough, you know, I found out that is not the case. Actually. <laughs> that is not indeed the case. Who's one of the bravest people that you can think of who's working to unscrew or make better the sexual culture in some way? Wow. Again, so many people, Jacqueline. I think for me, someone who I consider a friend, a dear friend, actually, um, based in Chicago, her name is Anne Ream. Oh, I love Anne Ream. Yeah, Anne is like such a inspiration for me on so many levels. And, and as you know, knowing Anne, you know, she's the founder and director of Vo- the Voices and Faces Project. Anne herself is a survivor of rape and sexual violence and has worked you know, very innov- innovatively with um, other survivors um, nationally using storytelling and, and narrative healing, both in small group sessions, but also uh, in larger groups going into prisons and, and jails, working with girls who are incarcerated as well as adult women. She's really someone who I think authentically and bravely represents what's at stake in these conversations around sexual violence. And, and really, you know, through her own and telling her own story and, and, and helping other women tell their stories really sets a, a moral imperative that as a society, we have to, to recognize and, and honor what people go through every minute of every day. Amen. Yeah, she's doing fantastic work and has done for so long. Well, thank you. You have survived the lightning round. Let's get into it. So, you know, we have here in the United States, a president who stands accused basically as a serial sexual predator, more than a dozen sexual assault allegations against him. Right. Some of them are on, we have on tape him bragging about it, right? We know that there was a Connecticut lawmaker who literally grabbed a woman by the pussy and said, I can do that now because Trump is president. Yeah, you know, right. and so all of that. But at the same time, we also have increasing militarization. We have domestically the criminalization increasing, especially of black and brown men. You know, it's just becoming a more fucking violent place to be. Absolutely. So I wonder if you can, by way of telling us about Man Up, tell us how are you seeing all of this stuff reflected in the work you're doing? Prior to starting Man Up Campaign, Jacqueline, I was actually a working journalist. By the time I even had the, the idea or notion of, of what was going to become Man Up Campaign, I had been working as a journalist for, gosh, 17, 18 years at that point, you know. And you were a, a war correspondent, right? Not through the entirety of my career as a journalist, my full-time career as a journalist. I spent about seven, eight years in conflict writing about child soldiers and war-affected children. Uh, which led led to um, my first book. And then following the publication of that book and promotion of that book, Innocence Lost, I then started working on a book project about sexual and gender-based violence against women and girls in conflict and crisis. 
And I was traveling to places like Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo, traveling to Afghanistan, traveling to Rwanda, uh, traveling to Sri Lanka, you know, talking to women and girls who had been victimized because of their gender, and in some cases was able to talk to perpetrators. And at that point, after seven, eight, you know, nine years at that point of going to conflict and crisis, um, I felt myself burning out from the travel, burning out from the distance from my, my, my daughter, who was, who was smaller at that time. Now she's almost 16. And frankly, Jacqueline, this is what I was seeing and hearing. And you know, I reached a crisis point where I said, I need to walk away from journalism for now, maybe permanently. I was actually working on a story uh, in Eastern Congo on the mental health or psychosocial needs of women and girls survivors of, of, of rape in, in the Congo. And you know, following that trip, which was an extended trip, you know, I came back, one, with a commitment to leaving journalism possibly for good, but also wanting to not leave the issue of violence against women and girls broadly. And so, you know, being that place where I was emotionally, physically, but wanting to honor the, the women and girls who shared their stories with me. And it was that it was that that period of rumination and reflection that led to me envisioning, you know, what became Man Up Campaign. We we launched Man Up Campaign um probably seven years ago this July and we launched it in two thousand ten in South Africa during the World Cup, the FIFA World Cup, what we call soccer in the States, but it's called football internationally. You know, we, we brought together young people from uh, 25 countries from around the world, mainly from Sub-Saharan Africa, but also really every continent in the world is represented um, by young people who were, are, and still are committed to standing up for equality for, for everyone, particularly women and girls, and for working at the community level in their respective countries on addressing sexual and gender-based violence. That's the, the space I wanted to occupy. I wanted to try to help fill. And, you know, it's so heartbreaking. Honestly, it's it's heartbreaking. It's it's painful in a way I, I never thought it would be that we're, we're existing now in a period in our country's history where we have a president who, frankly, speaks hypocritically, behaves hypocritically. And I think now more than ever, it's critically important that we young men and boys make sure that we're seen and heard, that we don't agree with the tone and attitude coming from the White House, coming from Washington, coming from the present administration about the, the condition of women and girls in the, in the society. Well, and you're right. I mean, it's not even just him. We, we certainly have Pence and his wanting to basically outlaw homosexuality in any way that he possibly can. That's right. We know that the government is in all likelihood in bed with Russia where there is currently a genocide against gay men happening in Chechnya. You know, we know that Jeff Sessions, our attorney general, said that he doesn't believe that, you know, what Donald Trump described on the Access Hollywood tapes constitutes sexual assault. Right. So it's <laughs> I think it's an important point that it's it's not just Trump. Um, it, there's a lot going on um, around sort of the performance of this aggressively heterosexual dominance-based masculinity, you know, up and down the chain. I kind of referred to this before, Jacqueline. I don't know if you realized it, but you talked about um, where we are at present in our nation's history, uh, cultural moment, as we, in regards to not just this presidency and the messaging and actions being undertaken by it that are harmful to women and girls, but also the climate right now in regards to men of color and, and their relationships with police. Mm -hmm. For the past year, mm -hmm. I've been um, going back and forth between my home here in New York City and Ferguson, Missouri. I'm actually from St. Louis, Missouri, which, you know, 
Ferguson is a suburb of that St. Louis, as you know. And so for the past year, I've been going back and forth to do an oral history project, talking to stakeholders in the, in the Ferguson community, those who are residents, who are business owners, public servants, police officers, activists who now live there or were there before and were activated by what they saw and heard and, and experienced following Michael Brown's uh, killing in August of 2014. And it's really, for me, you know, in so many ways, Jacqueline, it's, you know, it's still percolating in my mind, but in my, my, my thoughts, but it's been interesting to try to think about, you know, how, you know, not just race and economics, but how masculinity and manhood has the role that plays in what happened to Michael Brown, what has happened to men of color in, 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 in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, in, in Minnesota, and Baltimore, and Staten Island, and, and Cleveland, um, and South Carolina, all these places recently where we, we, we've seen, in Oklahoma, most recently, where we've seen men of color have these fatal encounters with police, just transforming how I look at my prior work and my work moving forward in regards to working with men around um, healthy manhood and masculinity, but also as advocates against gender-based violence. Police standoffs and these police murders seem like, in among other things, little plays about masculinity, about dominance and about who's in charge and about who's the strongest and who can be hurt. Mm. Can you say more about that and what you're, what you're seeing and what you're putting together about that? You know, it's interesting. You know, and I have to say, I feel so... Uh... I guess, for lack of a better phrase, Jack, I feel blessed, you know, lucky that I have not had to have had obviously had police encounters with the police before, but never ones that I felt would threaten my life. And I'm sure, I'm sure Michael Brown and Eric Garner and Tamir Rice and, and Freddie Gray and all these other people who've been killed by police in recent years, I'm sure they probably felt they did not feel a sense of threat in the, in the moment before they were, their lives were taken. I think for me, it's it just, you know, and maybe, you know, as I'm talking to you now, Jack, maybe it's specifically black masculinity or manhood because, you know, growing up in this country, uh, as I'm in middle age now, you know, I still, even just in my day-to-day life, still observe and still endure slights real and maybe even perceived based on being over six feet tall, based on having a deep voice, based on, you know, up until five years ago, having dreadlocks, based on being muscular, bigger sized, all these things like how that masculinity through these different frames is interpreted versus other frames. You know, it's difficult to talk about these federal police encounters and especially with the work that Black Lives Matter has undertaken as a movement without addressing gender, specifically you know, manhood and masculinity of men of color. Because I, I can guarantee you not every man of color is being pulled over or this is a threat. Then I'm asking myself, what is perceived as a threat and why? And why aren't we talking about the specific things that are perceived as a threat? That black men are being perceived as a threat specifically be because black men are coded as hyper-masculine. Is that what you're saying? I, I'm saying I'm saying that, but I'm also saying, and I don't, I can't, you know, this is just what I'm, yeah. this is what I'm thinking right now. You know, I'm sure it may change in the next three to six months or maybe not. But I, I don't think every man of color perceives a threat. You know, I think, you know, men of color who are perceived as physical threats specifically, along with this general perception that men of color are hyper-masculine, I, th- I think that figures into it. But I, don't, I, don't, I just don't think that every man of color is perceived as a threat. So, you know, I'm trying to understand, like, why, you know, Michael Brown's experience or my experience or my brother's experience or my friend's experience, why have all of my, all of my experience differed, you know? 
Do you have thoughts about that? I do. I don't know if I want to talk about them right now, but okay. I, I do. I do. All right. I mentioned my brother, for example. He, like me, he grew up in, in the St. Louis area, Missouri, not too far from where Ferguson exists and where Michael Brown was killed. And his experience and my experience with law enforcement in that area differed greatly. And it's differed greatly since we both left Missouri in different directions. And, you know, my experience is different from other friends and colleagues as well. Asking questions like this of myself, but also asking questions and being asked questions in community, I think will lead us all to a, a um, common answers or common solutions for addressing this issue. One of the questions I have about our present moment and specifically about oppressed or targeted communities, you know, this story has stayed with me. I've probably told it on this show before, God knows, because I, I think about it a lot. I, a number of years ago, participated in a peace delegation to Israel and Palestine, and we met with women who work at a women's center in Haifa as, as just one of the groups that we met with. And what, one of the things we heard was that there's a, a hotline for women who are being abused by their partners or sort of for gender-based violence. And that right. during Israeli assaults on Gaza or during heightened conflict in general in the region, the calls to that hotline drop off. Um, and that the general understanding or hypothesis about why that is, is that there's this sense that because our community is under siege, me being hit my, by my husband is not that important. I don't want to, like, get my husband in trouble because we're all in it together mm -hmm. right now. And I wonder if you see that playing out in the communities you're working in right now. Great question, Jacqueline. I mean, seriously, great question. It's a huge question, frankly. I mean, it's one that kind of bubbles under the surface of all the conversations I've had or overheard or, or you know, sought out. Specifically, when it comes to, I won't say Black Lives Matter specifically, but I think in communities of color, I can only speak from the African-American experience myself, this perception, belief that domestic violence or sexual assault by a partner, whether they be a husband or, or um, boyfriend or, or whoever, has to be endured but not held accountable. That, you know, if, my, if this person is be abusing me physically, sexually, emotionally, there's a reluctance to come forward, one, because of stigma and fear of being judged for having been someone who's targeted for that type of abuse in the first place. Mm -hmm. and as we know, as you know, Jacqueline, stigma is universal. But then it's added layer that by doing so, by coming forward, um, a parallel consequence will be this person being taken away. Right. Which will be detrimental for economic reasons. I'm afraid either because of economic reasons or because that's one less person in the community or one, you know, another you know, men of color who's gone. Well, and exposed to the prison system and possible vulnerability to police <clears throat> violence. And yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I, I mean, I'm not going to, I won't diminish those concerns and, and fears. Do I agree with them? No. I think there has to be accountability. I think sometimes men, men in general, of course, not just men of color, but men will use that against women to you know, say, if you, if you report this, this will happen to you. If you, if you do this, Who's going to provide for us or are you or our family? And I, I, don't, I think, you know, it's so harmful. It's, it's so difficult to talk about. You know, I've often asked many times, Jacqueline, of people, you know, publicly and privately, why can't gender equity, equality, gender equality, why can't the lives of women and girls of color and the oppression and inequality and abuse, which they are sometimes forced to endure, 
and lose their lives to why can't that be a part of the movement? If we're holding people accountable for incarcerating and taking the lives of, of people of color, particularly black men, uh, Latino men, we have, I think there has to be a parallel accountability in saying that the men that are, we're seeking to protect and keep with us cannot treat us, us being women, because like most movements, uh, Black Lives Matter is led by women primarily. But that's the irony, Jacqueline, that you got three women, three women who founded Black Lives Matter. You've got, you know, you got people on the ground in Ferguson and countless cities across the country and in Canada and in Europe who are, you know, starting Black Lives Matter chapters, who are out there marching, who are doing the, the, the less attention-grabbing work of organizing, educating, developing platforms, mostly women or all women. And still, there's not a public dialogue, a true public dialogue within the framework of these movements about the lives of women and girls. <sighs> you should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I want to ask, can I ask you a personal question? as a way of getting sure, at a sure. larger issue. So I don't want to only talk about toxic masculinities, right? Like, yeah. It's so no, easy when we talk about masculinity to just talk about the ways in which it's gone wrong. Um, yeah. And it's used to justify harm and, you know, those sorts of things and has become all about dominance displays and power over. I wonder if you can talk to me about how you like what your journey has been in relationship to your own ideas of masculinity as a way of getting at what's the good stuff about masculinity and what kind of masculinities are possible that we could be trying to emphasize or support it's a journey i'll just say it's a journey and by that i mean like many men of my generation i did not grow up talking about what it meant to be a man and so you know for me it was really in early and middle adulthood, if you will, I started asking that question. And I'm realizing every day, Jacqueline, every day, the journey never ends. And as a father of a daughter you know, who's soon to be 16, I, I'm constantly asking myself, thinking about how I see my manhood transition and, and, and how she see me in, in my best form as a man and in my worst form. And What do you think she's seen? She's seen me angry. She's seen me blow up. She's seen me impatient. And, you know, and, and traditionally, you know, these, these are aspects of, of manhood or masculinity that tend to be affirmed. Society has, you know, society has to affirm that this is how men are. You know, yes, men take control. It's expected that this is how men are supposed to behave or will behave. So she's, she's seen me disrespectful. 
she's also seeing me make amends. She's seen me um, honor or recognize my shortcomings in, the, in the exhibiting this behavior and language. She's seen me strive to reverse or make peace, if you will, with those individuals. She's seen this pull and, and, and push with me internally and externally around this type of behavior. Um, and I say it all the time, you know, people are complicated, I'm complicated. And we have candid conversations about it, you know. And I think that that's healthy too. I can say to her, I'm not black and white. It's I'm I'm gray, you know, complex. Well, and modeling that vulnerability, I think, is in itself modeling a different kind of manhood. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. yes. That accountability and and emotional literacy and vulnerability are not always yeah. ideas we associate with manhood. Yeah. I keep wondering how we make any progress, how we help anyone grow up with healthy ideas about manhood, whether we're talking about men growing up with healthy ideas about manhood or women with healthy expectations of, of what men are and, and what men aren't and what we can expect from them, right? Like we have a government that te that's saying basically like, if you embody the most toxic, the most abusive and dominant ideas about masculinity, you win all the things and you are in control. I just, ha I just am sick in the pit of my stomach about that, I guess is what I'm processing with you right now. Like, it just yeah. feels like it's always been an uphill battle to think about remaking cultural ideas of masculinity, but it just feels so daunting right now. Well, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great question, Jacqueline. I mean, yeah, I appreciate you bringing it up and thank you for expressing your vulnerability, vulnerability and feelings. Um, and talking to my my colleagues, my sisters and friends and others anxiety, not from not you know uniformly, but there is anxiety and angst, frustration, fear about policies being discussed or enacted, legislation being changed, just attitudes being fostered and nurtured. But you know, honestly, Jacqueline, I, I feel like what's at stake is so much bigger than who's in the White House right now. What's at stake is so much bigger than who's in Congress right now. I I, I think that the work done by you know, so many women and and their male allies and allies and colleagues, you know, in the past 20, 30, 40, 50 years, hundreds, hundreds of years ago, most recent, you know, with the recent marches and the conversations and the, and the actions being taken and resistance or response to this administration. I'm not as worried, actually, to be honest with you. Um, I, I think that the, the, the strides, the success that have been, been achieved for equality and protection for, and safety for women and girls specifically I think there will be some setbacks, to, and we're seeing some of those to be sure. But I think ultimately, all those collective efforts, from those who are still here and those who are gone, will not be diminished, will not be lost. If nothing else, I think this is a reminder of the importance of diligence, of not giving up, of not resting, of of not taking things for granted, successes or achievements for granted. You know, the things things have to be enacted and then protected, despite you know, the sparks or, or moments of misogyny and outright denigration of women, both in policy and, and, and tone nationally, I think ultimately equality and justice will win out. And I think that, you know, we have to, this is a moment, not just, not just a reminder for the importance of diligence, but also I think we have to start having, you know, real conversations amongst women, amongst men, and between women and men, and, and those as, as well as those individuals in our society who are gender fluid or gender non-conforming. We have to have these have open, difficult, awkward dialogues about 
identity and equality and, and place in society and protections. I think the word protection is so important here. Maybe not just yeah. in the way you meant, but also, you know, when you're saying that, I started thinking about the 53% of white women who voted for Trump. Um, mm. and, uh, I was too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I heard that. Um, and about the idea of sort of like how attached a lot of women, especially white women, are to the idea of traditional slash toxic masculinity as protecting them. Masculinity is not just a man problem. Absolutely. Absolutely. That what is protection and what is safety is a conversation we have to have, not just with men, but with women. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And that like what makes you feel warm and fuzzy and safe inside is not actually what's always in your best interest, which is a fucking hard sell. That's a hard, it's a hard sell. People are just emotional animals. What have you found in your work that's been the most effective in sort of changing hearts and minds? Well, I'll answer that question, Jack. What you said was so critical. Totally agree with you, Jack. We're, we're social animals subject to an array of wildly diverging behaviors, words, and internal, internal journeys, sometimes simultaneously. For me, though, and, and, and not to say I don't get upset or haven't been upset by what I've seen and heard and experienced the past, really the past year and a half since the, since the campaign, I look at the big picture, you know, and I, I look back to prior movements the civil rights movement, the, the suffragette movement. I mean, all of course, all these are ongoing, but past iterations, past moments of the women's movement for equality and justice, all these different movements, both domestic and international, places like South Africa or, or Ireland, you know, Central and South America, all these different places looking at movements and how they've manifest and where they ended up if they did end, and if they ended, it ended successfully or um, without accomplishing their, their stated goals. And those of us who are in the struggle for equality and justice, safety and protection, and we have to recognize it's ongoing. It's not, it's not over. There's this, this saying, I forget who said it, when people get tired, uh, movements don't get tired. You know, Individuals mm. will get tired, but not the movement itself. So the movement's bigger than you know, us individually. It's bigger than those of us who may feel tired or exasperated or, or, or anxious. And I feel those things myself, so I know those are, others are as well. But collectively, the movement can and should continue. For me, answered the question you just asked, what works for me, and it's worked especially well with what I'm doing now in Ferguson, but it's also worked, worked in the past as well, is really making an effort to find common ground or common humanity. I think one of the things that's really adding so much tension or stress right now, Jacqueline, in terms of our, our national dialogue, is that we're, we're, we're seemingly trapped in this frame of us versus them. And us versus them, to me, puts down certain conditions that I don't think are, are, are reality based, namely that, that the us all think alike, that the, that the them all think alike, whoever us and them is. There's a lot of nuance, you know, I know some people hate that word, there's a lot of gray. I think we're in the gray, you know, and I think that where we can find common ground and common humanity on issue by issue, we should, we should find it, take the opportunity to collaborate, to discuss, to have meaningful dialogue, because my attitude, at least Jacqueline, is if you can find common ground on one issue, that will at least allow you to see the person with whom you're finding common ground as a human being, as a person, not as a construct. And you may still disagree on certain issues, but at least you can be in dialogue. You can, you can see each other, you can listen to each other actively. And right now, I feel like it's so difficult for people, too many people, unfortunately, to actually to, to find that common humanity, that common ground, you know? And 
you know, not you know, for example, since we you know, we've raised it before in this conversation, you know, in terms of our current president and who supported him, who voted for him, versus who was against him, who didn't vote for him, uh, to me that's such that's such a a false construct because you know, voting for him and not voting for him, him doesn't necessarily connotate this list of things that you may feel or believe or hold dear to your heart. I don't think it means that, you know. And I think until we can recognize that nationally, collectively, you know, it's going to be hard to get out of that construct, that out of that dynamic of us versus them. You have like 100% more chill than I do. <laughs> yeah. Well, I went, I went to school in Missouri. I went to college in the South. And I've traveled the world sometimes. As a journalist, I've been across this country numerous times. And I, I just, you know, just based on my own personal experience, just me, Jacqueline, that's what I believe. I, I know that people aren't black and white. You know, I just, I know that. And so I, I, I refuse to let, I may be angry about certain positions people hold on something or on, uh, maybe one issue or a collection of issues. But I, but I know in my heart, from my own experience, there are certain issues that I know we're going to have common ground on. If we can find those issues, then we can talk. I mean, if I can't have a conversation with you, or if I can't see you or recognize you, then we're both trapped. Oof. I am glad you have those strengths. That's what I'm going to say about that. <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> I have a different set of strengths. Although I, it does make me... <laughs> it's all good. No, it's true. We, all, we, we do. And, and, that, and that's, that's good, too. That's good, too. Seriously. It does make me think about something I think about a lot, which is the way in which girls grow up being expected to identify with and empathize with and be interested in boys, but not vice versa. Even, you know, feminists are, are guilty of this being like this book full of cool stories about women is specifically for girls, right? This book is obviously for <laughs> girls, right? Like, and, yeah. and I'm glad for girls to have stories about amazing women, but if boys don't grow up, you know, yeah. with stories about amazing women, thinking women are inherently interesting, you know, I think that's actually yeah. part of how we get into this mess. And so, you know, there is, I believe philosophically what you're talking about, right? Like that yeah. we do all need to see each other's humanity. I, I struggle with asymmetries of power in that respect, right? Like, I am yet again being expected to like see the humanity in someone who dehumanizes me. Like, when am I going to see that fucking effort from them? Like, you know, like the asymmetry of power, like really makes that difficult for me. Mm -hmm. No, I, I get it. I get it. Does it not do that for you? No, it, it, it does. I mean, <laughs> like I'm, if you sit down with like racist white people, like cops or something like, is, is that hard for you? No. 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 I, I, again, this goes back to the, the, my being, you know, I guess, you know, once you're a journalist, you're always a journalist, but it goes back to my journalist, journalist experience. I mean, I feel like <clears throat> if, if someone is perceived or I perceive them as a racist cop, then my next question becomes, how do they get there? Like, you know, I, I, I don't know. No one starts out saying, I want to be, you know, a gang member or, or assault people or a racist or whatever. So my question, my internal question, sometimes external is, how do they get to that place? So I would engage the racist cop or the racist whoever or the homophobic or sexist whoever, because then I want to know, how did you get to that point? Like, I'm curious like, how you got to that point, because if, if I can understand the journey, then that makes it easy for me to understand how to best dialogue with you, how to best engage you. But you don't resent that you're the one doing the effort in making that possible when they're the ones with the power. <laughs> 
I hear what you're saying. I, hear, I understand what you're saying. We talk about the, about the power dynamics. Most of the time, I don't necessarily see them as having the power. I see myself as having the power because I'm making certain choices with intentionality and strategy to engage them a certain way for my own purposes. Like I, I see myself taking control and if it's from a power sense. So you're just focused on your own agenda. Exactly. Exactly. Interesting. And then in the interaction, they may still hate me because I'm black or because I'm a man or whatever. But for myself, maybe, maybe that makes it easier, Jack. For myself, I will have taken this away. I will have this knowledge, this information that I didn't have previously. And maybe you don't yourself have consciously. That's really interesting. And I think probably good life advice. Just like focus on your agenda. Just keep your yeah. agenda centered. I wonder if you can leave us with a working definition of healthy masculinity. Whew, wow. It doesn't have to be the, I, I advisedly said, uh, right. Like I, I do think probably Thank you. <laughs> the healthiest idea of masculinity is just that it's multiple, right? Like that it's diverse, but maybe yours for yourself, like with the understanding that it's not prescriptive, like everyone needs to be like you. Uh, okay, I would say, and this is going to sound wonky, this is not how I would normally speak, but I'll, I'm going to read, I'm going to say this. I would say having a healthy masculinity is holding an affirming sense of male identity, which which minimizes external and self-harm. All right, that's good. That's a good place to start from. That's a good place to build from. I love that. Yeah, that, that's a definition. <laughs> yeah, that's a, exactly. Fully disclaimed. All right. Jimmy Briggs, thank you so much for such a fascinating conversation. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Jacqueline. It's such a pleasure to connect with you. Yeah, absolutely. If people want to follow your work or what you're up to, where can they find you? Probably the best place, Jacqueline, is, is on t my Twitter handle. It's at, at Briggs Jimmy. Also on Facebook or LinkedIn. Again, by, by searching for my name. I say this about ego. Even if you just Google my name, you know, I don't have a website, but... Although what I'm doing is just is easily accessible on Google. So. Right on. And you can also find me on Twitter. I'm at Jacqueline F, J-A-C-L-I-N-F. Same on Facebook. On Instagram, I'm Jacqueline Fable. I do have a website at JacquelineFriedman.com. Friedman is F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N. You can find this show wherever fine podcasts are available. iTunes, Acast, Stitcher. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And also, while you're in there, give us a review. Give us five stars. That is how you help other folks find the show. And also, that is how you warm the cockles of my heart. <laughs> Unscrewed is produced and edited by yours truly, Jacqueline Friedman. Our in and out music is by The Pink Tiles. And our cover art is by Nicole Dodonna and was developed in collaboration with The Establishment, who also designed the sound cues. Until next week, I'm wishing you safe and happy sex lives. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.